And as you're seated, I would invite you this morning to turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 9 through 36. And as you turn there, tell me if this sounds familiar. Uh, you have a conversation with somebody where you are sure that they told you to go ahead and buy the shirt or go start the project. Uh, where you're sure that they said that they did like that particular food or you're sure that they said it was okay to go and play Nintendo. But then after you start, they see you and they say, hey, we talked about this and I said, don't do that. And you say, no, you said it was okay. And after going back and forth for a little while, you come to realize that they're right. You had talked about it. They had said, don't do that. But even though they said no, because you wanted it so much, you unconsciously turn their no into a yes. And that is the power of desire, isn't it? Uh, when we want something a lot, it can affect the way that we listen to people so that their no's, waits, and not yet's become in our minds, yes, go, now. Uh, and this doesn't only happen with people. It happens with Jesus too. We can have such strong desires that when Jesus says not yet, wait, or no, we can change it in our mind to yes, go, now. And since this is not good for our spiritual health, just like it's bad for our relational health with each other, uh, Jesus challenges us when this happens so that we can actually listen to him Receive him as he comes to us, and so follow him by faith. Uh, we're going to see this in John chapter 12, verses 9 through 36 this morning. We're going to see how the crowd's desire for Jesus to be a particular kind of Savior kept them from listening to Jesus and the salvation that he was actually offering them, and how Jesus challenged them so that they could eventually receive the salvation that he was bringing. And since we need that kind of help in different ways in our own lives, it's good for us to see how this happens this morning. Uh, so let's read John chapter 12, verses 9 through 36. We'll pray, and then we'll consider the crowd's desire, and then Jesus' challenge, and then finally following Jesus when we're confused. So John chapter 12, starting in verse 9, and then reading through verse, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 36. When the large, large crowd of the Judeans learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Judeans were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches, and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you all, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, said, heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Thus far the reading of what can truly be God's own word. Let's pray his blessing upon it this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this word, which you have given, we know, for our instruction and edification, so that we might know Jesus and follow him and trust in him and receive him as he comes to us. Father, we pray, therefore, as your people, that you would send your spirit now with your word, so that we might have minds to understand your word, ears to hear it, and hearts to believe it. And Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all of our hearts as those called to hear and respond and receive your word be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at here is the crowd's expectations. And let's start by saying that throughout the gospel, people come to Jesus with very strong desires for him to become a or be a very particular kind of savior. So the woman at the well wanted Jesus to be a savior who would help her avoid the difficulty of dealing with pain. The Galileans wanted a savior who would abundantly meet all of their physical needs, the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples wanted Jesus to be a savior who would reward them with 
prestige and honor and importance in the kingdom of God. And each time Jesus meets these expectations, he challenges them because he knows that salvation isn't found in avoidance or food or in importance. It's found in a relationship with him as he comes to us, as he offers himself to us. So what strong desire does the crowd have for Jesus? Well, it was for Jesus to be a political savior. And we start seeing that in verse 9 of our passage this morning, when a large crowd of the Judeans, who I know all your translations say Jews, learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And real quick, the reason why I'm saying Judeans and not Jews is because in Israel, in John's day, that word most of the time meant the people who lived in the area in and around the capital city of Jerusalem, which was in Judea. So have you ever heard of our term, the Beltway? Right? It refers to all the people who live in the Washington, D.C. area, politicians, lobbyists, government employees, people who are deeply invested in the day-to-day -day rigmarole of American political life. Judeans is roughly equivalent to our term, the Beltway, people who live in the Beltway. It's a political term. And that political orientation is why they greet Jesus the way they do the week before Passover. And remember, Passover is in part a celebration of Israel's political freedom from slavery in Egypt. So I think you're maybe starting to see the context a little bit more. So we read this in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, which is the capital city. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. So this is where our celebration of Palm Sunday today comes from. And there's a lot of levels to what's going on here. On the one hand, right, it's good that Israel and the Judeans recognize that Jesus is their king. On the other hand, they come with very strongly held desires and beliefs about what kind of king and savior Jesus should be. So palm branches were the symbol of the Maccabean Revolt, which was a partially successful revolution to free Jerusalem from the grip of a previous empire about 150 years earlier, the Seleucids, if you're wondering. Um, these palm branches at this time were very much like our American flag. They are a symbol of political revolution and freedom. They're not just things that happen to be lying about. It wasn't, wouldn't it be cute if the kids waved these things? This is a flag. This is a symbol of revolt. And they're crying, they're chanting the battle cry of the Maccabean revolution, which comes from Psalm 118. Hosanna means save us, Lord. So save us, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is the equivalent to us singing the national anthem during a parade, or if you're from Texas, yelling, remember the Alamo as you run down the street with the Texas flag, because I think people do that in Texas. Am I, am I right? Like every day? Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's an Indiana equivalent, but if it is, you'll tell me about it, I'm sure. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem. As he's entering, they're excitedly waving flags, and they're singing political freedom songs. 
Now, the question I think we ought to ask is, why are they so excited? I mean, Jesus hasn't done anything that would fit this yet. He hasn't raised an army. He hasn't started a revolt. He's, he's even said, give to Caesars what is Caesars and to gods what is God's. So why are they already throwing palm branches down and inviting their own death by supporting revolution in an occupied capital city? Wasn't well, it because, as John tells us in verse 9, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. They're excited that they have a king who can give them an immortal army to defeat their enemies. See, the crowd wants Jesus to be a political savior, a conquering, violent warlord like Caesar or Alexander, only this time he's on our side. Right? This time we're going to be the winners. And because they want this so much, they don't pay attention, either intentionally or unintentionally, to what Jesus is doing and saying. So notice in verses 14 and 15 that even though the crowd greets him with symbols and songs of political revolution, we read, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In the ancient world, when a king wanted to visit another king and wanted to show that he wasn't interested in war, he rode in on a donkey. Donkeys were well-known symbols of peace in the ancient world. And by the way, the passage in Isaiah that John quotes is about how God comes into Israel in peace because he's forgiving their sins. You see, in their excited desire to have a powerful warlord, the crowd missed or ignored what Jesus was actually saying. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem riding on a donkey on a symbol of peace toward Rome. Our modern equipment might be he rode up in the Pope mobile, not in a tank. And he's coming, he says, to make peace with his, pe with his people's sins by forgiving them. And the crowd looks at all of this and they say, look! A king who's going to give us an immortal army to throw off Rome. But that's not all. There's an uh, interesting exchange that shows how the crowd's desire for a political savior was actually keeping them from remembering what Jesus had said a few weeks earlier and was actually creating, I think, a context that opposed what Jesus was doing. So Jesus, throughout his ministry, is saying, I am the savior of the world. Um, blessed are the the peacemakers. Right? I've not come to to uh, to you know. I've come to to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and language. Verse twenty though gives us a different picture of this context. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, "Sir, we wish to see Jesus." Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So in parts of Israel, especially in Jerusalem, Greeks was used as a dismissive term for Israelites who grew up outside of Israel, who spoke Greek as their native language, and who just had a different political relationship with the Roman Empire than the Judeans did. So uh, this is not a perfect analogy, but it's close. In our political world, we have rhinos and dinos. And the kid's are like, I want a rhinoceros and a dinosaur. <laughs> Republicans in name only, Democrats in name only, right? 
You have the title, you don't have the content. Greeks was their equivalent of the rhino dino. You're an Israelite, but in name only. You're not really one of us. You don't support the right things. You don't believe the right things. You don't speak Hebrew natively. You're a Greek. And you'll notice that they go to Philip, who we're told is from Bethsaida, because Bethsaida was on the extreme outskirts of Galilee. And Galilee, and all the areas outside, were where a lot of Greeks lived. And Andrew was from there too. And I think it's worth asking why these you know, Greeks didn't ask any of the other disciples. And why did Andrew and Philip not immediately know the answer? Just a couple weeks earlier, if when they were in Galilee, the answer would have been immediately, yes, of course you can meet, anyone can meet Jesus. All you gotta do is ask, right? That's why the crowds are always pressing around him. Well, isn't it because they recognize that in this very emotional, highly charged, revolutionary environment that's excited to go to war and have an immortal army that maybe it wasn't safe to bring people who are on the wrong side of this crowd to Jesus? I think it does. I think that's why he went and got help. And then they went to Jesus and were like, hey, they want to talk. Is that okay? Is it safe? All these people not supporting them? And I think that this is why Jesus replies to their question in this way in verses 23 to 26. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus answers their question by saying, I am about to show my glory. And my glory is not that I'm going to go off and kill, but I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. And that's okay because when I die, I will, like a wheat seed, spring back to life. I'm going to be resurrected and I will bear much fruit. I'm going to save you from your sins. And then he goes on to repeat something that he said in several different places in this gospel and in the other gospels. You can't save your life by loving it more than you love me. And by life here, Jesus doesn't mean simply biological life, breathing, and having a beating heart. Life means very frequently, and definitely in this context, the way you live with other people. So it includes culture, lifestyle, worldview, neighborliness. We have a whole bunch of different ways of talking about this. That's all kind of wrapped up into this term life. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples and the crowds and the Greeks is you cannot love your politics more than you love me. You can't love your philosophy more than you love me. Just like he said to the Galileans when they came for the food, you can't love your food more than me or your comfort more than me or your place in society more than me. And then Jesus goes on to say, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. See, the crowds want Jesus to follow them to a revolution. Jesus wants the crowds to follow him to the cross. 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. You want me to lead you to a political victory. I'm leading you to an eternal spiritual victory. And where I am, there will my servants be also. But the crowds aren't listening well here. And Jesus knows that that is going to be bad for him. Because ironically, who are the ones who are going to cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? Who are going to be the ones who cry out, give us Barabbas, the insurrectionist revolutionary, put Jesus to death? It's the crowds who had their expectations about Jesus dashed, which I think shows us something. I think this text very much focuses on how when we can want something so much, it keeps us from listening to Jesus. Later on, you can see how when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations and we refuse to give those up, we can actually want to drive Jesus away. Get him out of my sight. He's not giving me what I want. And I think all this is why Jesus says that in verse 27, maybe to us, maybe until this point to you seemingly out of the blue, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus knows they're going to kill him for not being what they want him to be. But rather than be angry, Jesus shows mercy. Now, even though he knows that they will not understand in time to keep him from the cross, he also knows that afterwards what he says and does here will help them to repent and follow him. John actually says that earlier. The disciples didn't understand this at the time, right? They're waving the, the palm branches. He's coming in on a donkey. And then they remembered everything that happened. And I don't think that's just the core group of the 12. I think that's the disciples as a broad category of Jesus followers in the gospel. And so then, so then we read this out of his mercy in verses 28 to 30. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it said, the crowd that stood there and heard it said, it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So it's interesting, at other times when God speaks from heaven in the gospels, like at Jesus' baptism, everyone understands what God says perfectly. Here, some people go, is it thunder? And other people go, I think an angel had a private message for Jesus. Uh, do you know how sometimes, this happens to me all the time, uh, someone can be talking to you, but you're so focused on something else that you're not really taking it in. And it's only when like a voice starts to break through and you realize that you're not understanding what you're saying, that you finally have to stop and look up and pay attention to them to hear what they're saying to you. Has that ever happened? Yeah, all, I think everyone, especially the kids, should be going, yeah, absolutely. And I'm the chief one of this. I get locked in all the time. And someone has to break in with a loud voice. God's loud voice from heaven helps them realize they're missing it. So Jesus tells them, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus tells the crowds who's debating whether or not God has just spoken, God just spoke, and he spoke for your sake, 
to get you to see that you need to pay attention to listen to me now. And now that he has the crowd's attention, Jesus says this in verses 30 to 33. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So now Jesus says quite clearly, right now, I am not going to overthrow the kingdom of Rome. Right now, I'm going to overthrow the kingdom of Satan. And I'm going to do that by being lifted up from the earth. And when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw everyone to me. Judeans, Israelites, Greeks, Romans, Americans, Mexicans, Russians, Taiwanese, on and on. Yes, I'm not a political savior. I am a global savior. I'm not establishing an earthly kingdom. I'm building a spiritual kingdom against which the walls of hell themselves cannot stand. And I'm going to do that, Jesus says, by being lifted up, which was a well-known euphemism for being crucified. Crucifixion was very common in the ancient world. And it's such a horrible, terrible death that people had to make up a phrase to talk about it in polite conversation so that they just wouldn't be overwhelmed or get too numb to it. Like when we say that someone has passed on rather than died, right? That's a euphemism. It's just a nicer way of talking about a sad thing that allows us to talk about it without bringing up so many emotions. And that euphemism, you can see, cuts through, finally, the crowd's desires. So verse 34, the crowds answer him, we've heard from the law, which is the Torah kids. We've talked about this in Profession of Faith, first five books of the Bible, or, or in this case, it just means the whole Bible. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Right? How can the Christ live forever if he's going to be crucified. That's what the crowd asks Jesus. And when they say, who is the son of man? What they mean is, what kind of Christ and king is that? How do we follow him? And all of that then brings us to our final point this morning, which is what it looks like to follow Jesus when we're confused. When our strong desires run into Jesus's, no, wait, or not yet. So what happened here is Jesus has finally broken through a little bit. And they're starting to see that uh, what kind of salvation they want, what kind of savior they want, is not the kind of savior Jesus is going to be, at least not right now. And now they're confused. Like, how, how can this... How can this be my salvation? How can you be my savior? How can this death bring life? I don't understand. And then Jesus says this in verses 35 to 36. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Here's what Jesus means. And it's, if we had read the whole gospel, it would all kind of just, I think, make sense immediately to you. 
Jesus means, you've heard me tell you in all sorts of places that I am the light. And you've seen the peace, forgiveness, reconciliation, unity, and resurrection from the dead that I bring with me when I come to you. And you also know that there is darkness in the world. You know there's darkness uh, in the world and devil outside of you, and there's darkness in the sin and disobedience on the inside of you. And you know that the darkness, sin, wickedness, rebellion from God, refusal to receive him, brings or steals, and it kills, and it destroys. But I bring life and peace with God and neighbor. I bring back the sheep. I bring unity. I bring wholeness. I bring forgiveness. I am the light. And right now, the light, Jesus says, me is telling you that what you want and what you want me to be will steal and kill and destroy. It will steal your peace. This is why Jesus laments in Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel, if you had only known this day for the things that make for peace, but you would not listen, it'll kill your brother. Some Greeks went to Jesus, went to his disciples from their own area, wanting to see Jesus. And I think we can add in parentheses because they were afraid for their lives. And it will destroy your relationship with me. And I can think of no greater destruction of a relationship than someone standing in front of you saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify. So what are you going to do, Jesus says? Are you going to sacrifice what you want and follow me, believing that those who lose their life for my sake will find it? Will you do that even though you don't understand how my ways will bring Salvation, even though you go, what kind of Christ is that? I don't understand. Will you trust me? Having seen me and what I do, will you trust me? Or are you going to sacrifice me because you've decided that I'm the problem for not giving you what you want or being the kind of savior you want me to be? And will you do this without seeing exactly how this is going to end first? Because remember, Jesus is asking the crowds here to trust him before he's raised next Sunday. And even though we know about the empty tomb and you know we might feel like we could answer this question if we were there with the crowd with yes, absolutely, isn't it true that we still have to face this question from Jesus in so many different areas of our own lives? Doesn't Jesus ask us, will you trust me that sacrificing your desire for revenge and laying your bitterness on my back at the cross is the way of peace? Will you trust me that confessing your sins is the way to forgiveness and reconciliation, and it's not by hiding in the darkness, but by opening up to the light that Jesus shines his grace in, even though you don't know how reconciliation is going to come about? Will you trust me that repentance is the way to spiritual health and growth and freedom. Will you believe me that loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you is the way in which the kingdom of God comes and grows 
in our lives? Or will you ignore my words and abandon me because my ways are hard and are not always what you want? My friends, let's ask ourselves in closing, are our desires keeping us from receiving the salvation Jesus is offering, the freedom Jesus is offering, the person of himself Jesus is bringing to us? Are we, like the crowds in some way, so focused on what we want that when we see Jesus literally doing and being the opposite thing, we're not seeing him? And let's help one another to really make an effort to listen to Jesus. And also, let's help one another if we find that our desires are in conflict or we are confused. Let's help one another to choose Jesus because our ways don't lead to life and resurrection. But Jesus's do because he is the light. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we confess that sometimes our desire for you to be a certain kind of savior or act a certain way uh, have kept us from listening to you. We also confess that there have even been times when we have pushed you aside because you wouldn't do what we wanted. Uh, we ask that you would forgive us. And we ask, Father, that you would continue breaking through our hard hearts and strong desires uh, so that we can hear you clearly and follow you and receive the bountiful gifts of salvation and life which you are giving to us in Christ. And also, Father, when we are unsure if following you is the right thing to do, that it will actually lead to where you have promised, please help us to believe that Jesus is the light, that in him all your promises are yes and amen, and that when we walk with him, we do not walk in darkness, because we walk with him who is the light. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.